This morning's scripture reading will come from the book of James, chapter 1. If you'd like to follow along with me, I'll be reading um, from that passage in the uh, Pew Bibles that's in on page 812. That's page 812. James chapter 1, beginning of verse 21. Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which was is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing himself in a mirror. And for, and for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man, this one, will be blessed in what he does. Have you ever wondered what happened to Malhas? You might be thinking, well, who is Malhas? I can tell you that he's a man that has uh, certainly been in my thoughts fairly regularly in the last couple years as we studied him probably two plus years ago in the auditorium or we studied that text. And maybe you're still trying to remember who he is. Um, and if you had to Google it, that's cheating, so don't, don't do that. His name's only mentioned once in the Bible. And his very, very short story is recorded in all four Gospels. But only the Gospel of John, John chapter 18, gives us his name, Malhas. And only the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, tells us of this amazing interaction that he has with Jesus. He's the servant to the high priest in whom Peter used his sword to cut off his ear. Now you might be saying, well, you pronounced it wrong, it's Malchus. If you would said Malchus, I would have known it and I would have had it, but... I listened to some experts, because I said, if I'm going to say this man's name many times, well, I try to announce it correctly, because I always said Malchus myself. But supposedly it is Malhas. So basically, we know nothing about this man other than he's a servant of the high priest. So he would have had a belief in God and, and Jewish law, and may have been a very faithful, loyal man in that regard. He certainly would have heard and known about Jesus and the miracles, and the teaching, and probably not hearing always a good report of Jesus from the people that he served. And he is sent with Judas, the apostle, the betrayer of Christ, and a great multitude armed with swords and clubs, which included chief priests, captains of the temple, and elders, according to Luke chapter 22. And according to John chapter 18... It also included a detachment of troops, officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, and they had lanterns, torches, and weapons. In the midst of this betrayal and this illegal arrest of Jesus, John 18 tells us that Peter, the only gospel to name this man as Peter, takes out his sword and cuts off the right ear of Malchus servant of the high priest. It's at this time in Luke 
chapter 22 that we're told that Jesus heals the ear of Mahas. Try, if you can, to create this picture and create a visual of what this would have looked like and what is going on here. And let's back up just a little bit to set the scene more. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. One of the Gospel texts tells us this was a place that Jesus went often and went with his disciples often and prayed. He is praying again. So you recall he's praying vehemently, earnestly. He knows what is about to come. He prays that his Father would let this cup pass. He is praying with such intensity that one of the gospel texts says angels were sent to strengthen him. And after that, the text says that he was in agony and he prayed even more earnestly that sweat like great drops of blood dropped to the ground. This is the condition that Jesus is in when this angry mob with weapons and malhas come to arrest him. Jesus is innocent. He's undeserving of any type of mistreatment. And I only want to make those points because it really strengthens the point about how Jesus responds to all of this. And I'd ask you to think, how would you respond? How would I respond if I was under this type of stress and anxiety and mistreatment? What would I do? And then there's Peter, who thinks he's going to be the one to rise up and to protect Jesus and not allow Jesus to be arrested. And he takes this sword out and he slices the ear off of Malhas. Probably the one man who didn't have a weapon. But imagine that scene, and I don't want to make it gory, but I think it's important to think about that. Imagine your ear being sliced off, falling to the ground. The amount of blood that would be coming out. The amount of pain that you would feel. The fear that you would feel. The uncertainty that's going through your mind. And then enters Jesus. As this man is most likely crying out in great pain and anguish and suffering. And Jesus picks this ear up off the ground and places it back on this man's head and heals him. And now, all of a sudden, your pain is gone. You can hear again. And Jesus did this for his enemy, the one who's coming to arrest him. Certainly, it would have been tempting for Jesus to allow Peter to lead the fight. Certainly to use his powers to protect himself. But Jesus knew the will of his Father. And he allowed that to happen. But what about Malhas? What did he do after that amazing interaction with Jesus? We don't know. There's nothing else said about Malhas. So anything that we would say would be merely speculation, a guess. But I would like to think that he was impacted by this interaction with Jesus. And that he used this newly healed ear to hear the words of Jesus. 
and that he went on to follow and do the commands of Jesus. But I really don't know. He could have been completely callous to the whole event, and maybe later on he was even one in the crowd yelling, crucify him. I'd be sad to think that you could go from that amazing interaction with Christ to that statement. But we see time and time again men in the Bible who have no regard for Christ and his miracles and his words. And they go unaffected by them. What it does make me consider, though, is what is my response to Jesus? As we just talked about in the Lord's Supper and gave thought to, think about what Jesus did for me. The suffering, the punishment, the cruel, undeserving death on the cross. You think about our day and age that we live in, the most heinous criminals would never be put to death the way Christ was. And Christ did that so that I could be forgiven of my sins. And he gave me words of salvation and a pathway to his Father in heaven. Jesus did something for you and me that was much greater than just healing our ear. What will we do about it? What will our response be? We're at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has given us such great instruction. Here we are at the foot of this mountain, looking up at Jesus Christ as he implores us and teaches us to change the way we live, to be a disciple, to be like him, to love all mankind and to love God our Father. And at the end of this amazing sermon, Jesus will give one final encouragement to do my sayings. What will our response be? We don't know about Malhas and what he decided and how he lived the rest of his life. And we certainly can't control others and how they're going to respond to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. But we can control our own. So I encourage us to think about what is before us every time, every day. And that is Jesus and his willingness to die for our sins and to suffer and to give us the instructions we need so that we can have a home in heaven. And what will our response be to that? If you turn to Matthew chapter 7, we are in the closing verses of the Sermon on the Mount. And we will basically conclude our study, this long study that we've had on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has been in somewhat of a conclusion or in his closing words since about verse 12 of chapter 7, which was where our last lesson was. That is where he used the first therefore. In those following verses of that therefore in verse 12, he tells them that they have to love others, they have to serve others, they have to treat others the way we want to be treated. And then he makes it very clear that only a few will go to heaven and many will meet their destruction. And that only the few that go to heaven will get there because they did the will of his Father in heaven. And that takes us to these final words of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 24. Therefore, 
Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house. And it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. So we have three points that I'll share with you, all three points that we will go over this morning. And then we'll go through each one of these Individually, It's a simple text, very easy to understand and very simple lessons. But that's what makes this so powerful because these simple lessons that Jesus has been teaching, he is encouraging that these, this multitude will not just hear them, but they will go do them. So point one is doing the sayings of Jesus or not doing them will determine the fate of everyone. Point two, storms will come upon everyone. We'll talk a little bit more about how that is related to spiritual storms and challenges and tests that we face. And three, an encouraging message that everyone can endure the storms as long as we have the right foundation. So point one, we have two men in this story. A wise man who stood through the storm and a foolish man who fell when the storm came upon. They both heard the sayings of Jesus. But that was not good enough. Everyone at that moment, at that mount, had just heard these sayings of Jesus. But now what? Like Malhas, we have this impactful moment we know it is truth. We know it has power. We know it has authority. But what do we do with it? What actions follow? And the only difference between these two men that resulted in the final conclusion of the home standing or falling was their choice to either do the sayings of Jesus or not. The wise man did the sayings of Jesus. He heard them. He applied them. He changed the way he lived. The fool did not do the sayings of Jesus. He too heard them. And he may even have thought, that's true, and that's, that's powerful, and that's right, and that's a, that's a good idea. And even though he knew it was right, in the end, he chose to do nothing with them and make no changes in his life. I think we can all relate to this in a more of a physical way. I'm sure we've all been at a conference, read a book, saw a documentary, um, went to a class, something where you were somewhat moved by what you heard or what you read. Moved to the point where you said, I know that this is truth. I know that if I carry this out and I do these things in my life, it's going to have a positive impact. It's going to make me stronger. It's going to improve me. But how many times have we found ourselves in those situations and we walk away with this intent to do something and we never do them? 
we don't follow through. Our discipleship is certainly not confined to these four walls. It's not about coming here and hearing the sayings alone. Anyone can do that. And that person is going to fall when the storms hit. Our discipleship is doing the sayings of Jesus. Changing our lives. Striving to live and be like Christ. Working on things in our life. Things that Jesus has been talking about, even in this Sermon on the Mount. Going back to the Beatitudes, we noted that each one of those Beatitudes by themselves could be a challenging task that we might take on the rest of our life and striving to improve. Working on getting anger out of our life and hate out of our life and, and being compassionate and loving and serving and putting away sin and meditating on what is good and, and being a light and an influence and keeping our heart pure and being righteous. That is that transformational Christianity that we talked about before. Not the transactional Christianity where we come and, well, we were here today and we, we partake of the Lord's Supper and we sang some songs and we put our money in and now I'm good. And we never change. Our life doesn't change. We don't look any different. It's a constant effort of growth. It never ends. Just because we're older Christians, we are still striving to constantly grow and to transform ourselves, to change ourselves. If we come here every week and we hear and then we leave and we continue to live the same lives that are contrary to the sayings of Jesus, then we are the fool that Jesus talks about. And we will fall when the storm hits. And great will be our fall. Jesus' sayings in his Sermon on the Mount are powerful. And I'm sure many walked away at the end of that sermon and were moved by them and impressed by them. And we know that to be the case because if you read verse 28 and 29, after Jesus finishes his sermon, it says, And so it was, when Jesus ended these sayings, that the people were astonished. At his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So we've made the point a couple times throughout the study that there's this multitude there, and we don't know exactly how big that is, but it's a large number of people. And it says they were astonished at his teaching. So does that mean thousands upon thousands of people became disciples of Christ that day? Well, we know what Jesus just recently told us. Many will not follow me. Few will find me. Follow, find me and follow me. So just because someone is astonished by teaching and they recognize the authority and the truth behind it does not mean that they're going to do anything with those sayings. Jesus said, again, few will enter in. And do you remember what he said about that in our last lesson? He said, because it's hard. It's hard. It's difficult. We don't often think that way about being a Christian, about being a disciple, that it's hard, that it's challenging, that I'm going to have to make sacrifices, that I'm going to have to do things differently in my life, that I'm going to have to constantly grow and evaluate myself and study God's Word 
And it's never going to end. We don't think about the hard work and the challenge that goes into being a Christian. But we need to start thinking about it because it is required for us to be right with God and to enter into heaven. So many stories in the Bible, examples of people hearing and not doing. Stuart read for us from James that makes that so clear. I'd like to share one more, Mark 6, story that we're pretty familiar with when Herod has John the Baptist beheaded. And you remember Herod's an inappropriate marriage, an unlawful marriage. And John the Baptist has told him, you're in an unlawful marriage. You need to change this. And the end result, of course, we know is that John is beheaded. But look what it says in Matthew 6 and verse 19 and 20. Therefore Herodias, this is his wife, held it against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man. And he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things, and he heard him gladly. So here is Herod. He recognizes John and his teaching and what he's saying as to be truth and just and holy. And he even enjoyed listening to John speak and teach. It says he heard him gladly. Did Herod do anything with that? He remained in an unlawful marriage. He had John beheaded. So again, it makes the point that hearing is not enough. We can hear, we can know what is right and what is true, but we can easily not do anything with what we have heard. Our second point is about the storms of life that come upon us all. Notice that both of these men face the storm, the same storm. That just because one man was wise, it didn't mean he was able to avoid the storm. Just because the one man built his house on the rock, it didn't mean that he avoided the storm. The storms are unavoidable. They come upon us all. There's nothing we can do about that. But the wisdom, the following of the sayings of Jesus, the building upon the rock, the proper foundation, that is the difference. We can be more prepared for when those storms hit. And if we have done those things, it is in that moment that we will be able to stand. When we decide to follow Jesus, we must still anticipate that storms will come upon us. Being a Christian does not protect us from the storms of life. Those storms could be all sorts of things. Stress, anxiety, temptations. Jesus talks about some of those in the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe even physical things. Loss of a job, loss of a loved one, loss of a home, loss of health. They could be really big storms that seem like we can't get past it, like it will never end. It could be something smaller. It could be something that is daily, ongoing, that we have to deal with every single day. And we have seen so many of our brethren, both right here in this congregation and brethren that we have known who are now far away from us that we still dearly love, 
And they've dealt with these storms. And how have they responded? I'm encouraged by how I've seen my brethren respond to these storms. I am confident that they have built on the foundation of Christ. That they are hearing and doing the sayings of Jesus. Because I see their response. I see their faith staying strong. I see them still at worship. I see them still serving their brethren. And I'm encouraged by that. And I'm reminded that I can prepare myself. Because the storm will come. At some point, it will come. I cannot avoid it, but I can prepare for it. The wise man prepares for the storm. The fool doesn't worry about it, doesn't think about it, doesn't care about it, and he's not prepared. Acts 14 gives us a story of Paul that really helps us understand how serious these storms can be. In Acts 14 and verse 8, I won't read this entire text, I'll just kind of remind us of the context. They have entered into Lystra. There's a man there who is lame. And Paul heals this man. And the response of this multitude of people is that the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And they begin to gather together and they're going to offer sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. In verse 14, Paul and Barnabas tear their clothes and they run among the multitude crying out, trying to convince them that they are not gods, they are just like them, and they are trying to teach and to preach to them who the true and living God is. In verse 18 it says, And with these sayings they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. So here in one moment, they're so impressed and in awe by these men, they want to offer sacrifice. And it's everything that Paul and Barnabas can do to get them to stop and not sacrifice to them. And then look how quickly things change. And look at the storm that Paul has to face. Verse 19. Then the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there. And having persuaded the multitude... Which multitude? The same multitude that was just about to give sacrifice and worship these men. They now persuade this multitude to stone Paul. And they drag him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Now that's a storm. And I think I'm safe to say that none of us have ever faced a storm of that nature. That we have been stoned to the point that they thought we were dead and then drug outside the city and left to die. Verse 20. However, when the disciples gathered around him, and picture that, they think he's dead, they're gathering around Paul. He rises up and he goes into the city. And the next day, he departs from Barnabas to Derby. And he goes on to preach the gospel in that city. What a response by Paul. I would assume, since it says he left the next day, that he took that evening maybe to try and heal his wounds. But what a quick turnaround. That I am on the deathbed one moment, 
And then the next day, I'm back out going to another city and preaching the gospel. He didn't get angry. He didn't go try to track these men down. He didn't gather up a group to go fight and, and to, to take them to court or to try and get justice. His response was, let's go back to work. Let's get back to doing what I've been called to do. How did he do that? Why did he do that? Because he had an intimate connection with Christ as well. He realized what Jesus had done for him. That his soul was being saved because of Jesus' great grace and mercy. And now he wanted to impact others and allow others to have that same opportunity to be saved. And that is really what the discipleship of Christ is about. We have been impacted first by Jesus. We understand what he did for us. And now we want to share that with others. We want to impact others. Verse 21, And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Certainly Paul understood the type of tribulations that might have to be faced in order to enter the kingdom of God. Paul warns us that we will face many tribulations, but if we can endure them, if we are founded on the rock, if we will abide and do Jesus' sayings, we can endure those storms, we can overcome them, even something as serious as being stoned and left for dead. And our third point this morning is that everyone can endure the storm with the right foundation. And that's the good news, that we can endure. We can be like Paul. And even in something that is, seems so serious and so not able to overcome something like that, Paul was able to. And we can do the same, and we can remain strong through that storm. In Luke chapter 6, this is the parallel account of this story. And it uses a little bit different language there that I like. It says, The flood rose, the stream beat vehemently against the house, but it could not shake it. I think about that foundation, that when something so serious, that even something that that Paul has endured, that it won't even be shook. I think about us, we live in this area of, of earthquakes, and many of our homes are, are built very soundly. But even during an earthquake, and even during a, a storm, a serious storm, you'll feel your house shake just slightly. But spiritually, Jesus says, if we're built on the right foundation, we won't even be shook by storms. And how is that? Well, again, as I said a moment ago, any structure that's being built has to have a good foundation. I remember when we added on to our house. And we added on to the side of the house, and, and so the house is already existing. 
It has a foundation. There is a slab of cement already there on the side of the house. And I know nothing about building homes or anything like that, but I remember them, they're going to destroy and tear out all that cement. And then they dig these massive trenches. And they come in and they pour massive amounts of money worth of cement. Because I remember how costly that cement was. I mean, deep amounts of cement. And part of me in my mind, I'm thinking, there's already a cement slab there and you're just attaching to our house. I mean, how serious is this? But that's what was required to keep our entire house on a strong foundation. To keep it from not falling. To keep it to hold on to a storm. And that's critical in upholding that. And that's why, again, in Luke 6, it's interesting that it says, He dug deep to get to the rock. So this man who knows the value of building on the rock, he's putting in extra effort to get to the rock. And that goes back to the point I was making earlier. That being a Christian is hard. It does require work. And so this man knows that, that I'm building this home and this home needs to be on a rock. And Luke 6 says he dug deep to get down to find the rock. And then when he found the rock, he was able to build on that foundation. It took him some work and it's got to take us some work to create the foundation and build on the foundation that we need, which is Jesus and his saints. So if we do his sayings, we'll have a solid foundation. We'll be able to endure the storms of life. But we have to be a doer of his sayings. I found that word interesting too, the sayings. It came up so many times. It wasn't just his words. It wasn't his commands that we know is used in other texts. It was his sayings. And... At the end of this sermon, that's what it has been. It's been what he said. It's been his saying. And we must be a doer of his sayings. A couple of other references. Colossians chapter 2 verse 6. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith. And First Peter, amongst several passages, will reference the cornerstone. And we've talked a lot about that in classes. Again, when you are building, you need a strong founding cornerstone to build accurately. And that cornerstone always referred to Jesus Christ. That He should be our cornerstone. So what are these sayings of Jesus? Well, certainly you could argue that any words of Jesus, any commands of Jesus would be his sayings, and that would be true. But in this context, the sayings have been the Sermon on the Mount. It's been everything we've been studying for the last several months. The Beatitudes and the relationships and prayer and fasting and how to judge And we can go on and on and and review, and I'm not going to take the time this morning to do that. But we have to know and hear what the sayings are first. That is the first step. And certainly a time like this is an opportunity to do that. We had an opportunity this morning. If you missed this morning's opportunity, if you were not in a Bible class, you missed out on an opportunity to 
hear the sayings of Jesus. If you are not here today, you missed an opportunity to hear the sayings of Jesus. As I say that word opportunity, we've been saying it a lot in my practices recently, my assistant coach specifically, because he keeps making the point to the players. They all want to play. And some of them obviously will not play as much. And in practice, he keeps telling them, opportunity. Here's your opportunity. You're blowing your opportunity, is basically what he's telling them. And I've appreciated him saying that, because he's reminding them every day in practice, here is your opportunity to get playing time. Now is the time to get the playing time. And you're, you're, you're blowing away that opportunity. Being here and gathered together like this is just one opportunity um, that we should take advantage of. But what do we do on a daily basis? Where, when are we spending time in God's Word, hearing His saying? And then are we evaluating our life to make sure that we're doing the sayings? Because, again, storms are going to come. We have the ability to endure We have the ability to have a strong foundation. But it all comes back to whether we'll do the sayings of Jesus. What about Malhas? What did he do? I'd sure like to think someday I'll be able to see him in heaven. But I don't know. I would sure like to think that I'll see everyone in this room in heaven. But I can't control that. And you can't control that. But what we can't control is what we do. Will we hear Jesus' sayings and do them? That's what we need to do to go to heaven. If this morning that invitation call is pulling at your heart that you need to do the sayings, that you need to be baptized for the remission of sins, that you need to change things in your life, that you need the prayers of this congregation to help you with that, I'd encourage you to respond to that tug on your heart and come forward now as we stand and sing.